This is a one and all media podcast. Today. 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 With Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. Today. Today. Today with Jeff Fines. Welcome back to Today with Jeff Fines. My name's Aaron, and last time Pastor Jeff started a message from the book of Esther. Now, Esther is a Hebrew who God placed in Persia where she ruled as King Xerxes' queen. She lived an extraordinary life, content to serve God wherever he placed her. And I know that there is something that we can apply to our own lives today about being content wherever God has called us. This is part of a long series, so if you want to catch up on any messages or listen to certain ones again, just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you listen to your podcasts. Here's Pastor Jeff with the remainder of this message he's picking up in Esther chapter 5. Now notice, survival is no longer the most important thing to Esther. The fact that she would give her life to something bigger than herself now is the most important thing. Her worst case scenario is no longer death. Her worst case scenario is disobeying what God calls her to do, even if it costs her something. Now, she may be brave, but she ain't stupid. She comes up with a plan, as only a smart woman could. She decides that she's going to put on the robe of the queen. And so everybody's been fasting and praying somehow that God would work on the other side in the mind of the king. And even though the odds are heavily stacked against her, they're praying that God would give favor to Esther. Esther, with her head down, waits. And then in the ancient world, if the king raised the golden scepter, it meant that your life was spared. But somehow the king decides, he raises the golden scepter, he spares her life. And not only that, he goes over to Esther And he says, Esther, what does my queen want? Up to half the kingdom I will give you. Now, he's not serious. This is what we call royal hyperbole. It's the way of saying, hey, I'm feeling good today, and you're looking good. So here, what do you want? Okay? And Esther says, she had this plan along. She goes, what I would like, king, is for you to come to a banquet that I'm going to prepare. And I'd like you to bring your friend Haman with you. Now, she's got a plan. And the king is elated. Sure, I like parties. I'm I'm in. Now, this is where the story does this to us. The Hebrew narrative is fantastic. It takes our attention off this for a moment, and then we go look at Haman again. Haman again is a piece of work. When he hears that he's invited to this banquet by the queen, and only he's invited, think about what that did for him. He's probably just walking home, man, am I the man or what? And I alone have been invited to the banquet by the queen. Man, I am something special. He's feeling good. He's walking home but he's got to go by the gate. Guess who's there? Mordecai. Guess what Mordecai does? Haman, what a piece of work. It ruins his day. Even though all these good things are happening just because of Mordecai and he goes home crying and he calls for his wife. Her name is Zeresh. 
But he calls all of his friends. Hey, friends, come around and wife, come here. I want to talk to you guys. And he makes a speech. He says, am I not wonderful? I mean, am I not wonderful? Look at the splendor of my wealth and riches. Look at the number of the sons that I have. Look at my wife. Check her out. All my promotions. I have been placed above everyone else in the kingdom other than the king. Even the queen lets no one come to her party except me. Am I not wonderful? These are all my assets. However, none of this does me any good as long as Mordecai sits at the gate. What a piece of work, man. Now, here's the advice. And this is in Esther chapter five, verse 14. His wife's arrest and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. That's her advice. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman and he had the pole set up. What a piece of work. This guy says, you know, I'm going to the banquet tomorrow with Esther, but you know what? I just can't, I can't enjoy it because Mordecai. Now the narrator of the story lets us see that. And then he kind of makes a transition. And now he takes us over to the king. The king can't sleep. This the same night, the same night that Haman erects the pole, king can't sleep. He's got insomnia. And in the ancient world, when the king can't sleep, he calls for his steward or stewardess. And she comes to read him a bedtime story. He says, read me a bedtime story. Now think about all the options here. Well, what do you want me to read, king? Oh, why don't you choose that book, The Annals of the King? So she chooses that book. What story? Oh, just choose a story. And she opens up and it just so happens that she lands on the page where there's a story about a guy named Mordecai who saves the life of the king by revealing an assassination plot. But as he looks in the book, he realizes, wait a minute. He saved my life, but he's never been honored. And this would be a blot on the king's record that you did not honor someone who thwarted an assassination attempt. He needs to do something. He needs to do it fast. Now, this is where the story just goes from strength to strength because Haman comes to work the next day. He doesn't know anything about the king's dream and the king doesn't know anything about Haman erecting this pole on which to impel Mordecai. So when Haman comes into the king's court, here's what the king says. King says, Haman, glad you're here. What would I do? for someone that the king wants to honor. How can we honor someone that the king wants to honor? Of course, Haman, he's so self-centered. He thinks it's him. So he kind of says, yeah, okay. And he thinks to himself, man, I better make this good. I'm kind of like writing my own check here. So he clears this. Oh, king, let the royal robes be brought out and put on the man the king wants to honor. Let the royal horse be brought around to the front of the palace. And let him ride on the royal horse and take the royal crown and put it on his head. And then ride him on horseback through the open square where all the people can see proclaiming, this is the man the king wants to honor. And the king looks at Haman and he says, dude, you're good at this. I tell you what, Haman, you go get that horse and you pull him around front. You take that robe and you get that crown and you place it on Mordecai's head. And then you get a council permit for the parade. Can you imagine what this did to Haman. Because according to ancient uh, rules, Haman would have probably had to guide the horse through the city. So he's down lower than Mordecai. Mordecai's just eating this up. Yeah. Yeah. And Haman's, oh, I hate this guy. I hate this guy. So then he's upset. He's frustrated. And after it's over, he goes home crying to his wife. Now it's funny. After his wife gave him this advice, (laughs) I got to read this. Basically, it's a paraphrase. She says, man, you shouldn't have messed with the Jews. You're in big trouble now. (laughs) You're the one. And then 614 tells us that while they were still talking about this, the king's eunuchs arrived to take Haman away to the banquet. So now Haman's on his way and he thinks, well, things are going to get better now. Okay. I, I can't do anything about Mordecai for now, but at least I get to attend the banquet. 
And while the banquet is going, stay with me, while the banquet is going, the king walks over to Esther. Now it's time. Esther, what do you want? It's a great banquet. I'm here. Haman's here. Up to half my kingdom is yours. What do you want? And with Haman listening in, she says this in Esther chapter 7, verse 2. If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked the queen, Esther, who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, an adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. The king at that point recognizes he's been tricked to kill his own queen and her people. And that very night, the very pole that was erected in Haman's backyard to kill Mordecai, the king has Haman hanged and impaled on it. Now, that's not the end of the story. Because Esther's job now is to appoint a new chief of staff because Haman's dead. Guess who she appoints? Would you like to guess? Mordecai. And then she reminds the king, but king, there's still this edict. You've got to change it before some of my people start dying. And the king, in typical Xerxes fashion, all we know about him, okay, bring me my signet ring and somebody else write it. I'm tired. Mordecai, you write it. So Mordecai writes the new law. And he writes him not only saving the life of Israel, but actually giving them favor. So that if you look carefully in the New King James Version, in chapter 8, verse 15 through 17, it tells us that the people started pretending to be Jews, even if they weren't, to get some of the favor. What a turnaround. What's the point? I guess it was about 20 years ago that I saw this movie called The Power of One. It's actually based on a Bryce Courtney novel. One of the best books I've ever read. One of the best movies I've ever seen. And it's the first time I ever saw my favorite actor, Morgan Freeman, act. He was a lot younger than but he was fantastic. This movie was about a young South African boy who felt the call of God, who was incredibly brave, who had a young woman that held him accountable when things got tough. He really felt like he could end apartheid in his corner of the world. The power of one. And because of his courage, because of God's sovereign power on him, because of him being held accountable when things got tough, he was able to do it. Single-handedly in his part of the world, he put an end to that racism. Now, every time I think of that movie, I think of this story in Esther. And I think of what God can do. Now, stay with me. What God can do with one person who is totally committed And says, I want God to do something remarkable in my life. Now, here's the problem. Most of us can think of remarkable people. And we do honor them. Jesus, quite remarkable. But you've got others like a Mother Teresa. Who worked with the poorest of poor in the streets of Calcutta. She was remarkable. You think of a guy like Billy Graham. Out of all the mud and dirt that you hear on mega pastors or on televangelists, here's a guy that has lived a long life that's so much above reproach that anytime any accusation's been made, it just won't stick. That's a man of God right there. One time, somebody asked Billy Graham, why did God choose you to do this work? He said, I don't know. I don't know. It's the first thing I'm going to ask him when I get to heaven. <laughs> we talked about Jim Elliott a few weeks ago, but here's the problem. You know, I said I wasn't going to mention that I'm 50, so I'm not. But here's what you learn as you get older. These guys are not supposed to be the exception. 
They're supposed to be the rule. God wants to do this with every life. Every one of us, we're supposed to desire the remarkable life, not the mediocre one. But the problem is most of us think you'll drift into it. You'll just drift into it. You'll drift into remarkable life, which is why most people live a life of mediocrity. You think there's nothing you have to do with great intentionality to live the remarkable life with God. And so you keep on living a life of mediocrity year after year after year. We used this statement last year and we repeated it numerous times. We said, direction, not intention, determines destination. Do you understand? Just because you want a good marriage doesn't mean you're going to have one. Just because you want good children doesn't mean you're going to have good children. Just because you want a good job doesn't mean you're going to have a good job. Just because you want to be financially secure in your older age doesn't mean you're going to be. Without direction, without some kind of intentionality, none of those things will take place. And the natural tendency is to drift toward the bad in life. Now, Esther, in the story, shows me what it takes to live this remarkable life. And I have four quick questions for you, and it's the end of the sermon, but, I, but stay focused, okay? So here they are. Number one, who plays the role of Mordecai in your life? Who challenges you? Who doesn't let you get away with all your whining and tells you, stop acting like a Barbie, pull the string, go, 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 hit the ground? Extraordinary lives do not happen without a Mordecai. The one constant you see in people whose lives are remarkable is they have somebody in their life that speaks the hard word to them and they don't get defensive. They listen and grow from it. You know who mine is? Listen, I'm telling you, the reason I'm so passionate about this is I know the kind of person that I would have had the tendency to become. I still fight it. But I've had somebody in my life since I was about 20 years old. It's my father-in-law. Now, let me tell you, we've had some heated discussions because he's been more than willing to tell me what's wrong with me from the first time he met me. <laughs> In fact, I know that when, I, when Robin brought me home to meet him, he and his wife, Betty, they were devastated. It's amazing how things turn out, isn't it? They were, the, the, you're not going to marry this bozo. And I'm sure he would say that I was a lot like Haman. The problem is, I guess the good thing is, God gave me the wisdom to listen to this old guy. In San Diego last year, we had a mega church pastors conference. And the guy who was leading the devotion, so you got 150 pastors of large churches. The guy who was leading the devotion had brought 150 footballs. And he used the illustration of how at the end of an NFL game, some player gets the game ball, the player who has made the greatest impact on the game. And then he challenged us each to stand up one by one and say who has had the greatest impact on our lives. And all these pastors, one after the next, said, well, my father, my father, my pastor, my pastor. And it came to me, and I realized if I was going to tell the truth, it would have to be Charlie Delaney, my father-in-law. And I stood up, and I told the story. And then we sent him this football. And all the pastors signed it, 150 signatures. And I sent it to him in the mail with a letter. You made the biggest impact in my life. Can you imagine how he felt when he received that? but it's a two-way street. He had to be willing to give me the hard word and I had to be willing to take it. The Bible says the kind of relationship we should be looking for is this one, the one where sparks fly. Now you look at that, you say, well, all right, Jeff, that's a great idea, but where does that happen in scripture? I'll tell you where. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen: as iron sharpens iron, so another person sharpens another. 
Sparks fly, friction. You've got to have somebody in your life that will look at you in the eye and say, Stop your whining. Come on. Stop hiding in the Barbie house. Go, go, go. Hit the ground running hard, hard, hard. Without that, your tendency will be just one big softy living a mediocre life. Eugene Peterson says this. There is a great market for religious experience in our world. Oh, yeah. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. Man, who's the person that speaks the hard word into your life and you listen? If you don't have that person, I want to tell you right now, you will not drift toward a remarkable life. You'll drift away from it. Second question, do you believe in the sovereign omnipotence of God or don't you? The three types of people in the world. The first group believes this. Uh, you know what? It's all dumb luck. You're alone. That's all you're ever going to be. It's dumb luck, wrong place, wrong time, whatever happens to you. There's a second group of people that they believe, I don't know what's going on out there and I don't know if I believe in God or not, but I think there's some force or energy out there that kind of makes good things happen even out of bad. There's a lot of those people. But then there's a third group that you're supposed to be, that I'm supposed to be, that God is absolutely sovereign over this world. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. Nothing catches him by surprise. And all of our lives, God is the designer, and we're pawns on the chessboard that he moves from place to place to place, and he's looking for some G.I. Joes who will say, okay, God, I don't like this move. I don't like being here, but you're sovereign. You brought me to this place and this time for such a time as this. So do you believe in his sovereignty or not? Do you know that the word God is not mentioned one time in the book of Esther? Not even once, but implied throughout that even when you're in exile, even when you're not in Jerusalem and there's no temple, even though he may be unseen, unnamed, God is always at work and he has positioned you wherever you are for such a time as this. Psalm 16, five says, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. Please listen. Life is not about your happiness. It's about your contentment, and there's a difference. Seasons in your life will always not make you happy. But if you can learn to be content in any and every situation, you have the potential to live a remarkable life. And the only way you can be content in any and every situation is to know that God placed you wherever you are, and there's a greater good at stake And that God can do remarkable things in your life where you are right now, which leads me to the third question. Where's your Persia? Where is your Persia? Where's that place that you hate, but you find yourself living there? You know, the application could go on forever. It could be the situation you're in with your kids, situation you're in with your wife, situation you're in with your husband, situation you are in your job, in your finances. You go on and on. That's your Persia. You've got one of two ways to respond. You can say, now this is where, folks, this is where the rubber hits the road. You can say, you know what? Uh, I hate it here. I detest it here. And you can start to think that God is not sovereign. You are. And you decide what happens next and next and next. And you decide how things should be. But when you really believe that God is sovereign, you believe wherever, whatever the situation you're in right now, every person in the room, you believe that God is large and in charge and in control of this. And he's waiting for you to ask this question. Whatever your Persia is, he's waiting for you to ask, what is my great opportunity in Persia? 
Why has God brought me here? What is it that I can do that will be remarkable in the midst of this? Stop kicking and screaming and trying to get out of it. Stop hiding in the Barbie house. But get out there and ask God, what remarkable thing can we do together in the midst of a horrible situation? Which brings me to the fourth and final one. Do you begin each battle with prayer? Esther, before she started, before she went and obeyed God, as far as Mordecai and God, of course, he's speaking through Mordecai. She says, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. Can I ask you, what are you known for? What are you known for? If I said the name Jeff Vines, would you think of golf? Unfortunately, some of you would. Some of you are known for your cars that you drive. Some of you are known for the houses that you've built. Some of you are known for the job that you have. Some of you are known for the perfumes that you wear. Some of you are known for the clothes that you wear, for the kingdoms that you've built. Not all of that's wrong, but according to the Bible, first and foremost, you're supposed to be known as a man or woman of prayer. That is your identifying mark. And yet so few are. And the problem is, if you don't get this one right, the other three are very difficult to come by. But if you get this one right, the other three just fall into place. Because if you are a praying man or woman, then God gives you a grand revelation of his sovereignty. And no matter what position you're in, no matter how deep and bad your Persia, you have this ability to have a peace that passes all understanding because God continues to give you the knowledge that he's large and in charge, he's in control, and he is moving you from place to place to accomplish his goodwill and to make you into a remarkable life. If you're praying... I won't have to challenge you to have an accountability partner. You will pray and the spirit of God will remind you who is speaking truth, hard truth into your life so that you don't continue on this path of mediocrity. Do you get what Esther is about? God wants to do something remarkable in all your lives with you, in your home, in your work, in your community, and in your Persia if you will just start to believe. Folks, I want to challenge you. Find your Mordecai. Find him or her. Believe in a sovereign God. Identify the Persia that you're in and become a person of prayer. And if you do those four things, you'll live a remarkable life. But if you keep drifting and you go out of here, nothing changes, then yeah, you'll probably go to heaven because you're saved by grace through faith. But this mediocre life that you're in, I'll just go from mediocrity to mediocrity. And you'll die a death wondering what your life was really supposed to be about. Live your life now for the kingdom that is to come. And you will have anything but a mediocre life. Amen? Father, I want to thank you and praise you for a powerful narrative in the book of Esther. I, 
I thank you that you opened our eyes to the, to the reality that we're not, supposed, we're, not, we're not mediocre people. We've been called by the spirit of the living God. We've had the power of the Holy Spirit placed in us to enable us to do that which you call us to do. And whatever you call us to do, you assume the responsibility to equip us to do it. You're just waiting on us to hit the ground and go, 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 and live our lives for a purpose greater than ourselves, where our biggest fear is not death, but disobedience that you have called us for such a time as this and somehow we would miss it. I pray for those in the audience that you've called to be teachers that have been just putting it off for a long time. Those you've called to be leaders, they've been putting it off for a long time. Those who have incredible means and you've been calling them with a holy discontent to change the world, but they've been putting it off. I pray that your spirit would come down now. Open our eyes to the reality that we have the opportunity to make a difference in the world that will be everlasting. That's our prayer as we've looked at the book of Esther in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Next time, we'll bring you a new message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.